Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Paul Dunn. Now, Paul is a former warrant officer with the Welsh Guards. He's now the head of UK facilities for the British Antarctic Survey. Welcome this afternoon. Thank you so much for taking part in this. But I, I'll just the opening gambit is where did it all begin for Paul Dunn? And what was the inspiration to, to join the Welsh Guards? So uh, in 1991, as everybody's aware, the the government at the time uh, put quite a significant amount of pressure on Wales as a country. And uh, I left school with some decent qualifications. But at the time in North Wales, uh, there was a serious recession on and uh, I applied for an apprenticeship at the time. And for one apprenticeship, to give you a bit of scale, there was 600 kids going for one apprenticeship at the time, and that was with British Gas. Wow. Uh, so my work opportunities were were very limited. Uh, however, uh, from a family background, my grandfathers had served in, in World War II, uh, both in, uh, in Burma and on the D-Day landings. And I used to spend many an evening with them reminiscing over some of their experiences and one day, uh, my grandfather said, why, you know, I said, what's up with you? I'm struggling for work. Why don't you get yourself down the careers office? And at the time, I was six foot three. So I walked into the careers office and I met a <laughs> recruiting warrant officer from the Welsh Guards at Bangor Recruiting Office. And, and the rest is history. Fantastic. And what, what battalion did you join? So uh, at, at the time I joined, the Welsh Guards... We're only one battalion. Right. I mean, we suspended our second and third battalions after the Second World War. So, uh, throughout the sort of uh, the period after the war, the Welsh Guards had only ever been uh, one battalion. And at the time, uh, the battalion were stationed in a place called Ballykelly in Northern Ireland, which many many ex-service people will know is uh, what well, used to be a Roman battalion base. So. I went out there and 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 learned some uh, wonderful skills, met some wonderful people, and really really found my feet actually when I, when I was a new draft. And it was like a little Wales, even though we we're on the uh, the northern coast of Northern Ireland. It was a fantastic fantastic experience for me as a young person. Where, where did you do your basic training? So I, I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to go through the Guards Depot, which uh, is today is known as the Army Training Regiment, which is in Perbright. But back in the day, that was uh, called the Guards Depot. I was one of the last junior soldier intakes before they uh, developed the, the idea of training uh, junior soldiers. It's more of an apprenticeship model now, through done through Harrogate, I believe, but I'm not sure. But yeah, I, so I, I became a junior a junior guardsman at the Guards Depot, and then they developed the Infantry Training Centre concept at Catrick. But I was fortunate enough to pass out one of the last platoons to pass out of Purbright. Fantastic. And did you specialise in anything particular at that time, or did you 
just do your general duties? So it was it was general. Uh, it was called the Combat Infantryman's Course. Uh, there was plenty of foot drill, uh, which was a supplement to, to the training program. So I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, digging the healing on the square at Alexandra Barracks as it was then. And yeah, so we just did an extra drill supplement because 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 at the time I didn't know uh, the, the the leading role that House Division play in state ceremonial events for for our nation. And yeah, it was quite exciting really because even though I was going out to Northern Ireland, there was. There was always the uh, the public duty side on the horizon, and it wasn't until uh, we finished the the tour of Barry Kelly that we then settled into a period of uh, being on the blue line, as they say. But yeah, basically the state ceremonial. And uh, the first troop in the colour I did was in 1996, when uh, the Irish Guards uh, were were trooping the colour. So we formed one of the detachments to support that parade, which was very good. What is that like? I mean. I absolutely adore. I've been several times. I've been very lucky to have been there. I've been to lunches afterwards at Wellington Barracks. But as a soldier, what is that like? The preparation must be phenomenal. Lots of preparation, but I mean, you alluded to it there, Paul. I mean, my time at the Guards Depot, you were always preparing uh, for for those events. For example, you know, bull in the boots. Well, when you're in training, it seems to take hours, and it did take hours. But as you progress through your skills, things like preparing your equipment for for those parades became second nature. And there, you know, there was a time where I could do it in 20, 30 minutes and be ready for the next day. But when I was a recruit, those skills are pretty much, you know, hour labour intensive hours and hours of labour intensive bullying, as they called it, getting your kit up to scratch. And yeah, it, it, initially it was hard work because uh, the standards the House of Division demand are very high. So uh, there was some, uh, you know, major generals inspections. Uh, before you left the guards depot to go to your unit, there was a commandant's inspection. So that was everything from your bedding to your boots to your equipment. And, and I suppose that's where I learned the foundations of facilities management, really, because you start to look after equipment. And then as you move up the, the leadership, chain you start to look after people and then you sort of honing in skills you don't realize you're doing it absolutely and the the if your kit malfunctions at the at the wrong time if you haven't looked after it properly that could be life-changing if if you're out uh, in the field absolutely and yeah i mean you know they, there's an old saying a pocket in camp uh, is a pouch in the field so equipment husbandry is uh, in the forces in general needs to be second and then you know cleaning of rifles weapon systems vehicles as that became more more and more apparent as, as the various conflicts this country was involved in sort of yeah different driving skills there's all sorts so it just really developed for me it was you know in the hills and fields of Purbright on the ranges at Purbright on the drill square at Purbright and then as you get through to your unit not only are the guards a uh, a fantastic, as you've alluded to, state ceremonial soldiers in the red. And, you know, this country is really proud of what we do. But actually, the, the House of Division and the Foot Guards especially have a have a serious operational role to play uh, yeah, to, in support of our country. So, yeah, we were, you know, good on the square, but also had to be really honed into what was going on on operations. I always take visitors to the memorial, Five Guards a Foot, Irish, Welsh, Scots, Coldstream, yeah. Grenadiers. 
And it is a fantastic memorial that overlooks Horse Guards Parade. Over, and it's absolutely stunning. And I vividly remember sitting there watching as the guards came in and then you've got the cavalry and everyone else. And you look at that memorial and you just think how significant it is because you've got the king now will be on, on his birthday parade, we'd we'll be sitting there looking at that memorial, looking at all of his troops. And it's just, it, it makes you go cold. I'll, I'll be honest with you, it makes you so, I watch it every year, even if I'm not going, I will watch it. Same with, same with um, Remembrance Parade, but, you know, it just it just drives something through you. And I just wish we could get more motivation through the younger people to understand exactly what the military are here for and, and how important they are. Oh, absolutely, Paul. I agree with that. I mean, you know, taking part in that parade, I've done it on a number of occasions. I've been fortunate enough to be the regimental sergeant major who, uh, in tradition, it's the only time a warrant officer will draw his sword on parade. So I had that privilege in 2015. But, yeah, I mean, there there is an education piece. I mean, uh, with a lot going on in, in the world today, I think people can sometimes be drawn away for the sacrifices that the services make in defence of people's freedom of speech. And that can be quite frustrating as a, as a veteran. But, you know, it's about education. And I think, uh, organisations like the RBL and and some of the other charities who support veterans do a fantastic job oh, absolutely. in getting that message across. But one one of the good things we do in this country is give everybody the right for freedom of speech. And I just think people can sometimes forget that doesn't come lightly, as you said, as you know yourself, Paul. When you deploy, you see you go to countries where them freedoms aren't there. So it's just that realization of how lucky we are, really. I, I absolutely agree, and the, the the sad thing is that sometimes freedom of speech is only one way in this country, but we won't go down that route. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was your family's reaction when you, you've you've got your bear skin? I mean, that is that's another iconic piece of equipment. Just when you see the reds and the bear skins, and you know, it's just what was it? What, what was your family's reaction? So uh, I remember. In it, my first tree, Queen's birthday parade, my mum and dad came along, and they were immensely proud as they were when I when I passed out of the <clears throat> of the guards depot. I mean, back in the day, the parades were similar, so the pass out parade for a guardsman at, at, at a training establishment was mirrored on the the actual birthday parade at the time. So I was up to speed in it. But yeah, my family were proud as punch. I mean, when I when I joined, I think my mum was really nervous. She didn't really want me to leave home at 16. That's pretty much unheard of now with the way they're trying to keep kids in education till they're 18. But actually, uh, it, it did me some good. If you were to ask me at the time, in the you know, it, while I was in basic training, it took me so long to get used to the rhythm of being a recruit with the early mornings, you know, people uh, talking to you and communicating to you in, in, in military ways. But I was never really, a, 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 I wouldn't class myself as one of those outstanding standout recruits. I was almost in survival mode. It wasn't till the end where uh, I looked around and there was like probably only 30 left and they had to amalgamate the two groups into one because a lot of people had either passed by the wayside by thinking it wasn't for them or got injured. And then I started to enjoy it. You know, I think there was probably 10 weeks left of the course. 
I was I was used to being in the field. I was comfortable on the square, and I, and, I, and there was there was just sort of almost this coming of age where I I could sort of uh, see myself as being a soldier, really. And, and you know, the thoughts did cross my mind of just just leaving it till I was a little bit older. But I stuck it out, and and one of the key things is being resilient in anything you do, whether it be work or your personal life. You know, resilience. I think nowadays is. It's hard to come by, and and the guards depot definitely taught me how to be resilient. There was no sympathy with, you know, whether you were on the sick or you were feeling a bit tired, or, you know, you you had that sort of six or seven minutes to eat your meal, and then you were back out running around. And you know, I remember many a time I'd be actually throwing up because I hadn't had the chance for my lunch break to, <laughs> to properly to, to properly settle, and then you'd be on a PT session or you'd be running around. But yeah, you get used to it, and I think re- building resilience in life is really important, and that's definitely one thing I'll take away from my early years in service. And of course, you would have been serving with with people that were in the Falklands. I mean, these th- there would still be people within the regiment that that would have still would have served out in the Falklands in eighty two. Absolutely, Paul, and I owe a lot to that peer group, the class of eighty two. We have, and I'm still friends with many of those guys. That the, there was a cohort of of people from my platoon sergeant in in basic training who was a, a very lovely gentleman called Byron Cordy who who was on the Sir Galahad uh, when that fateful incident happened uh, to my section commanders through to when I first went into the sergeant's mess as a very young land sergeant I'm not sure if many of your listeners know but the guards have a unique rank of the land sergeant which is effectively a corporal but wears three white chevrons and has allowed the privileges of the sergeant's mess. Uh, there's some history in that. Uh, I think it was Queen Victoria who who signed off that warrant. And uh, so I was in the I was in the sergeant's mess as a young 21 year old in the battalion, and and, it, and and the mess was was steeped in uh, that that cohort of veterans, and uh, they were fantastic mentors. I talk about resilience, you know, with, with those guys, you have to be resilient and, and, and be open to their ideas in a certain way. But yeah, they, they, that that peer group is very much uh, some uh, a peer group I absolutely respect and had a big shaping of, of you know, me becoming a warrant officer myself or a senior soldier within the Welsh Guards. They, they're just fantastic people. And, and today uh, I'm working with, with those guys, many of them retired to to keep the association alive and, and just to make sure that people are properly looked after. So that's a huge privilege, Paul. Well, I met a guy called Spider. Who? Yes. Yeah. And and I've just, my, oh. my teacup, he gave that to me in 2011. Yeah. My teacup sits on that every day. The Welsh yeah. Guards Association, done in Welsh Slate, I'm told. And, yeah, um, from Blaine, I, I've seen them, and, and Spider is a part of. I'm not sure how he's getting on with his health now, but I know he he was a part of the Welsh Guards pilgrims who used to go out to Europe and and just make sure that the the First World War and Second World War sites were were looked after. And I know he used to uh, spend a lot of time just commemorating and 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 looking after you know, the Welsh Guards sort of battle sites out there. So, yeah, I know Spider very well. I'm not sure he's in the best of health no. at the moment, but I wish him very well. Yeah, he, he's one of life's characters. And as I say, I was lucky. I've got some really good friends who who served there um, with the Welsh Guards. And, of course, you would have been deployed overseas in that, in that time. And, uh, you know, the Falklands was one part of the Welsh Guards' history, but you also had your own tragedies with 
the more modern or sort of more up to date conflicts. Um, yeah. How does that? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, I was a warrant officer when, uh, so they, we did an Iraq tour in 2005, but uh, unfortunately I was uh, posted at the last minute to the infantry training centre. Right. Uh, they needed a sergeant post, so I did miss the 2005 tour, but our command officer at the time, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Bathurst, who, who, who left as the Major General of the House Division, actually a very... A fantastic officer actually was one of the one of the reasons why that conflict de-escalated with the work he did in around the sort of nor- northern Basra area and just to try and take some of the connective activity out of all of it. I know the PWRI had been before us where Johnson Bahari had run his Victoria Cross and it it, it, it had got really kinetic but one of the things he did uh, with, along with the, with the battalion and all the other attached arms and all the other units out there was just try and come back from from a period of war fighting again, which which had been through twice actually in the early nineties, and then obviously after Telic, uh, I can't remember what the Telic number was, but I know the Irish Guards were involved with this, with, it, with it second time round. So yeah, then we we went into uh, into uh, Operation Herrick, and as you know, September the eleventh had a huge effect on on not only the military but the world in general and terrorism uh, had a had a foothold in Afghanistan and the next thing you know not just the Welsh Guards but lots of units the Air Force and Navy should be included in this conversation had, had a different role to play doing a, a, a fairly tricky operation in one of the most dangerous austere environments in the world and mm. you know my own experiences of the 2009 tour were were difficult. I mean, history is there that you know we lost our command officer. Yes, uh, uh, Colonel Thornlow, God bless his soul, was I think he was the second British officer. You might have to check your history on this, Paul. Since Colonel Jones in in the Falklands to be killed on operations, and he was doing that leading from the front. And yeah, we had we had a tough time. Not only uh, Colonel Thornlow, but lots of my pals and and other fellow Welsh Guardsmen paid the ultimate sacrifice on that tour. But on the 2009 tour, uh, it was very kinetic and it was almost ground uh, holding and clearing and and trying to get some security in in the follow-up operations. But when I went back on the second tour during the year of the Olympics in London, that was a very much a different challenge. I I was a company sergeant major of number two company and we were the police mentoring advisory group and the Afghan police had had or the Afghan government had a massive recruiting drive. I mean, they recruited somewhere in the region of 120 to 150,000 police officers in a short space of time, and the Taliban and and, and the enemy forces had realised this and and gone into the police. You know, had, had inserted themselves into the police force, and we had very different challenges on the 2012 tour where. You know, we were we were obviously supporting the police, fighting the enemy, and trying to bring some security. And we were also dealing with the insider attack, which is well documented. Where, yeah. unfortunately, my company we lost five people through insider attacks and various things that went on. And that was through uh, trying to take a mentoring approach to to what we were doing. And and, and we adapted, but yeah, I was disappointed uh, with. With the way it ended, not so much with the way the parachute regiment did their bit, because I thought they were absolutely, or the, the whole British forces were absolutely fantastic. 
the way they dealt with the evacuation of Kabul. Yes. But it was for me and my mental health. That was a that was a time where yeah. uh, I I really struggled to to get it get my head around the sacrifices that have been made just just to just to be leaving. But I I, I am aware that you know the Americans had a huge influence in that as well. So it is what it is. Uh, you know history's there, and unfortunately that was. That was the way it ended, really. And it is. I, I lost some mates out there, and it's just um, you do question what what it was all about. Sometimes, I mean, that's I'm, my dad was in the army. I'm, you know, I, I live in a in Essex. I'm Colchester boy, so I I know yeah. how it all grinds. And um, but I'm going to really cheese you off now because whilst you were out there during the Olympics. Steve Shield and Leighton Wilkes took me to St James's Palace to a, an Olympic um, event, and in walked the, oh, yeah. in walked the Princess Royal, and, oh. and she was attracted by the the, the blue red blue the, the the ties, and she came over and yeah. started talking to the boys and asked where they were from, and she looked at me and she said that, but that's not a guard's tie, is it? And she was absolutely delightful so i'm really sorry that i brought that up but that was my- <laughs> right. I mean, we, well without uh without people like steve and leighton doing their bit i mean we we have to have a re uh, uh it called the reserve operation group and to look after welfare and you know life functions on and you know we think things still need to go on so don't don't worry you don't have to apologize yeah. about that paul and who's who's the welfare guy that lives oh he's still with the with the regiment uh oh. oh Jiffy, Jiffy Myers. Oh yeah, so yeah. Jiffy is a civil servant now who supports uh the veterans community. I mean, uh my regiment is fantastic at this. We we have a uh, some really good trustees and, and they make sure that Jiffy uh Jiffy's role looking after our own in, in Wales and, and wherever the guys are. I don't really know too much about Jiffy's caseload, but I do know his work supporting uh, our veterans in Wales is has been absolutely fantastic. And I'll be honest with you, Paul, it saved lives what he does. Oh, I, I, yeah, I I know. I mean, I, I've had that conversation. And when when a beacon goes out and someone's gone off off the yeah. rails, he's he's on it, and you know people get found and they and they're put into a safe place, which is absolutely fantastic. And as I say, I, I, I'm an imposter. Because I've got all these brilliant friends who have served, you know, with the Welsh Guard. So I've got a, mm. you know, I couldn't be any further from Wales where I where I live, but I've got that affiliation because I, I've had such a, a positive experience with them and Billy Mott and and all all the guys there. What was it like getting promoted to the boss? I mean, it's the highest rank within the Welsh Guards, non commissioned rank, isn't it? I mean, what was that like for you? I mean, it was a huge privilege, Paul. I mean, uh, I I was running for the job with my some of my closest friends, and uh, at the time, uh, my very good friend uh, Leighton Ryan, who uh, we'd met each other as as youngsters in the battalion, and we'd sort of followed the same trajectory up through the ranks. And when it came to the very end, I remember we were both RQMSs, which are usually the senior WO2s who support the regimental sergeant major, and uh, we had that that we've had such a close relationship that when the command officer asked how we'd like to be told who was who was getting it, 
and who who would have to get another job. And I don't mean that as a disappointing because Leighton went on to be the regimental sergeant major of the Honourable Artillery Company. We just said, we'll just do it over a glass of port, shake hands and move on. And that's how it went. But I, I can honestly say uh, Leighton is fantastic. And there was nothing, you know, there was nothing between us. But unfortunately, when, when, when you move up through the ranks, it does go in a bit of a pyramid effect where you end up, you know, there's only one regimental sergeant major job. We didn't have two battalions, and I was just really lucky. But a lot of hard work goes through. Yeah, it was, it was proud as punch. I mean, uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed my time as time as the regimental sergeant major. But it does come with different responsibilities because the people you look after is where you need to concentrate your efforts and the decisions you make or the advice you give your commanding officer because you are as confident. Then. Uh, you know, that has a big impact on the morale and discipline and everything of, of your people. And, yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't take that lightly. And hopefully I did a, did a good job for those people. And, you know, I made sure there was lots of fun to be had as well. You know, society and art, the army is changing or the forces are changing with society in general. So it was about maintaining a level of fun in amongst all the serious stuff was going on in a nice disciplined way. So, for example, making sure people were out on the rugby pitch, enjoying themselves on a Wednesday afternoon, because I think the services in general and what I found towards the end of my career, we just forgotten how to enjoy ourselves. Yeah, everything right. was a bit, it was everything was just a bit too serious, you know, and. You know the sense of humour, and I, I, I say banter within reason. Obviously, that needs to be thought about. But we just weren't enjoying ourselves in in, in various things. You know, I'll give an example. The Welsh Guards St David's Day was always, you know, a parade. Get your leaks, and with a bit of consultation with some of our senior early officers, we managed to turn that round and and have like a rugby tournament on actually St David's Day, which was more for the people to enjoy other than just standing on a parade square for three hours getting a leak yeah but we can still do that but we can still enjoy what what we're about and you know just things like that i think just bringing a level of enjoyment in, in amongst the professionalism was something i'd felt the army in general had had always almost forgotten about it i think that was due for a lack of opportunities for for young service people as well you know uh the adventure training the the fact that as soon as afghanistan had finished there was a you know there was a huge defense budget to catch up on and and the opportunities were slowly getting smaller and smaller to 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 to, to travel and and to enjoy that side of the armed forces so we were keen well i was keen to bring some enjoyment back into it and uh, hopefully i did that but with with some of the changes so it is difficult i i, I noticed it in the police service where yeah, banter, and it yeah, all right. There was inappropriate behaviour. I get all that, but you know what? Every joke has got will offend somebody. It doesn't matter what joke it is, and and absolutely, I think sometimes we've we've become a a society where we just want to moan about things, anything, anything, yeah. anything, yeah. and we and we don't know how lucky we are when you look at the things that are going on across the globe. We don't know how lucky we are, so we moan about minutia which doesn't mean anything and um everybody knows their rights and i get that you know we've we've got to deal with people with dignity but as a sergeant major if you there's no point in saying oh would you mind picking up that mortar because it, no. you, you've got you've got to drive it home to people 
If I was doing public uh, order, there's no point in me saying to people, oh, can you just move up and put the cordon on here? You get no. get it done, you know, and that's... Yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's, I agree with you, Paul. There's a, there's a way... I think communication is important, and in the example you're giving there, there's, there's, there's that aggressive, short, sharp style. But, you know, I remember one thing... Uh, which I think really helped me. I used to speak to the guys every Monday or when, or early in the week to let them know what was happening. So if we had uh, gaps in guards where, you know, potentially there was people going to get messed around or there was uh, things in the pipeline, a little brief to them to say, right, guys, we're like, I don't know, as a regimental sergeant major, we've got this to fill. We've also got this. We're short here. So I guarantee you, I'll, I'll ring fence this so you can get home and see your families. But I need a full commitment over here for the for this period of time. And I just thought found that level of communication with the guys actually helped me out because whenever the drill sergeants or the sergeant majors want needed the people power and and to put the bums on seats, we could find it easier by programming better and giving people opportunity to know what they're on. And we've all been there, being messed about on the end of it. And, you know, that old thing, hurry up and wait. And that was something I hated when I was a youngster. Yeah. So I tried to get a level of planning and make the guys understood because they're not, you know, they're not silly that we need to do this because of this. I need your support here and I'll get you away here. And then we've got this. And and I just found it worked a lot better. And there wasn't once in my time as regimental sergeant major where we struggled to furnish any of the, any of the requirements. And we had a lot on, you know, we had the birthday parade. We had the presentation of new colours. Which uh, which was something that made me immensely proud to see the guys get that off her late Majesty was something I'll never forget, and that was in the grounds of Windsor Castle, really private ceremony. It was between the Queen herself and the Welsh Guards, and you know the guys, you know there, there were so many. Unfortunately, not everybody could get on the parade because no. the Windsor Quadrangle is so small. But that's an example where. Some people, I'd say, right, you're doing the new colours and those guys have had a go at the, that will then not be able to do the birthday parade. So everybody's families could enjoy it with those individuals. It's yeah. like trying to split it a little bit. So, yeah, just some good planning, communication. I think I think that goes goes hand in hand with any any sort of job and I'm sort of seeing the benefits of that now in my current role. So if you if you can if you can have a good plan and communicate your plan, even if it isn't, even if it is difficult tasking, I think you'll get the support by by the people buying into what you're trying to achieve. And I think that comes down to to leadership, which is a bit of a cliche word, but leading by example is 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 an important thing in trusting your people as yeah, well. Absolutely. And before we move into your current role, when you took the birthday parade for the 89th birthday of the Queen, how much preparation do you have to put into that as a as the regimental sergeant major? How much, or does that fall to the um, garrison? Does who who takes the lead on on the prep? So the garrison sergeant major and the brigade major are responsible for the year on year delivery, right? But the the trooping regiment, if you like, in my example, the Welsh Guards, we we take on the operational requirements, and so that's furnishing the people and the rehearsals to get it up to standard. So we don't really see 
the senior team at London District, like the Garrison, for example, until we're near ma- the major generals' rehearsals, which is only the second Saturday before the Majesty, yeah, uh, and it, you know the King is now would would go on. So we'd have to turn up there and 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 be operationally ready to go, and we treat it like any other operation. You know, get your numbers right, make sure your planning is there with. Uh, transport and feeding for the guys, making sure uh, the administrative side of it and Steve Shields will know this and Leighton, you know, on the tailoring side and those two guys are fantastic military tailors just to make sure that everything's is, is prepared. So, yeah, they, I suppose London District is like the uh, the brigade headquarters and then in Outside of the brigade, you've got the battalion, the battle groups who deliver. So it's no different to to any operation. And yeah, so responsibilities for the rehearsals and everything fell to me. But with a fantastic team, I had two drill sergeants. Uh, one was uh, one was on the green side. So outside of the 89th birthday parade, we still had operational commitments and tasks to help other units and guards to do in the green kit and then the ceremonial drill sergeant would would work with bill especially closely to to deliver the parade and myself i was involved with that parade so i had to rely on the team because you know i had to get my lines right and you know and the kit because because the regiment of sound major forms part of the escort which is <laughs> yeah. probably the most important well it is the most important part of the parade yeah absolutely absolutely and and another another question before we move on how many times do the young soldiers have to do the Tower of London? How many times do they get to to do that as a ceremonial? And Buckingham Palace come to that outside. I mean, if uh, if you so they usually come. In my experience, they were in eight week blocks. So everybody thinks the Tower of London, Buckingham Palace, and St James's Palace, and Windsor actually are all separate entities. Well, they're not. They're furnished as part of the same roster. Uh, so that uh, decision-making process has devolved to a WO2 effectively to, you know, he'll have his slot. It'll be, let's say, the Prince of Wales's company. He'll have to furnish Buckingham Palace, St. James's Palace right. and and uh, the Tower of London. Now, the Tower of London traditionally is usually furnished with some of the more senior soldiers because uh, it came with uh, an element of experience needs especially for the ceremony of the keys at night you know you can't have four inexperienced guardsmen working with somebody like paul cunliffe because it just will not end well <laughs> because paul cunliffe will demand the standard and rightly so yeah where those people need to be squared away so when you are planning your you know who's doing you usually put the youngsters on buckingham palace because they're quite far away and it gives them a chance to get used to the environment then you put your more senior guardsmen to st james's and especially uh, on the Tower of London, right. and the perk of that them guardsmen as well is that they don't have to take part in the change of the guardsmen. They they basically get on a minibus and don't even put their red kit on until probably ten o'clock that night. So there's some perks to it and some traditions like the you might have heard of the old soldiers. You know they're the guardsmen who make it all happen behind the scenes. So yeah, so it's furnished exactly the same, and usually the senior element enjoy the privileges of being on the Tower of London because that is a unique and probably more enjoyable guard. But somebody might have a different opinion to that, which is fine. But when I was a Lance Cortland, a guardsman, and I used to enjoy the, the Tower of London because it was uh, it, it, it's quite a special place, as you oh, well know. 
Yeah, it is absolutely. It's an amazing place. And after twenty years, I've been going there, um, helping out on the IPA night. I still love it. I was there last yeah. week. They got the Christmas trees up, and it's. Yeah, I just still love the atmosphere of the town. But so yeah. you sign off. At what point do you start preparing for the job that you've now got, or the jobs that you've had since leaving the military? At what point in the military did you start that? Uh, to be honest, Paul, I didn't do any preparation for my resettlement. So in my final year of service, uh, I was basically on for a secondment. Now the British Army had changed the way uh, the way it career managed warrant officers. So we were very much, and this is something I didn't agree with, but is actually working now. But at the time, I was it was something I wasn't buying into, which was the command sergeant major. So the British Army now is furnished with command sergeant majors across brigades, and uh, the Army sergeant major is a, is a is a prime example. Now, my opinion at the time was that's not something I was buying into because I think once you get to regimental sergeant major, it should be then a rite of passage into into the late entry commission. So I was very traditional like that, but to be honest, I couldn't see the wood, the trees. So I was going through that process of be, going on a command sergeant major's course out in Texas, actually. And myself and my family, my wife, we were we were planning to do that move. We we're going to rent the house out because it was just a wonderful opportunity. But uh, my mother then uh, was diagnosed with cancer uh, and she unfortunately passed away. And that was one of the reasons I couldn't take up that appointment out in the States. And if I'm completely honest with you, I was absolutely shattered with all of the tours I'd done and everything. After 25 years, I just thought I need to give myself some time away from being told how to think, how to act, where to be and what time. So I, I then made a decision to to leave and uh, I even asked for an early release which was which was uh, which was unheard of at the time but the command officer tried to try to dissuade me from doing that but I, I I just wanted to go I wanted to go and I was feeling rather bitter about things and uh, the Welsh guards and the army in general probably didn't need me in there as a grumpy LE officer or whatever, whatever I was going to do so I, I thought I just I just have a go in Civvy Street and and see where it took me but I my first step I was very nervous so I went down to the University of Brighton and I enrolled on the troops into teaching because I'd always enjoyed instructing in the army and I'd had some uh, low level qualifications in instructing and and teaching so Brighton University accepted me onto that course but my uh, I'll be honest with you my uh, my aptitude if you like to be a teacher on the maths and english front because it because rightly so to teach the young people you've got to have wasn't quite to standard and i never had any time to prepare for that which i was bitter about because i was still in an operational role so uh, that opportunity uh, never never developed so i then signed up to be a reservist on the ftrs which was looking after uh, young people out in thetford forest which was close to cambridge and uh, I I looked at that, so I wasn't really leaving the army, and I went across for the interviews and did all that and signed up to the uh, FTRS system. And then there was something in my heart which just thought, you know, you're not really making the break. Is this what you want? And then I I ended up there. I just I just I just pulled the pin on that, and then I was basically looking looking on Indeed for jobs. 
that's that's how, that's that's how it ended up. But I didn't fall into facilities management, and I took a job as a as a site manager looking after a cluster of primary schools for uh, Peterborough County Council, actually, which was very rewarding. And then I started to learn the ropes of communication and facilities management in that role, and I did that for about eighteen months. Wow. So you, you're part of your resettlement because you you get time to resettle, don't you? You didn't do a, yeah. You didn't do an FM course or anything like that. Nothing. Wow. No, I just I came out and I, and if I'm honest, the career transition partnership. I don't know if it's got better, but you know I was sat there as a W one who'd been who'd been highly tuned in and to be a, a state of alertness and everything. And they, it was it was about being a chef or a bricklayer. Now, no disrespect to them trades. But I was in my early 40s and, you know, God, have you seen my DIY, Paul? There's no way I was going <laughs> to, there's no way I was going to retrade as a tradesman because I think those kind of jobs you have to start from a relatively early time, like the apprenticeship programs and yeah. I meet tradesmen in, 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 my, in my job today. And those guys have been through an immense amount of background training. And I just, I just didn't think anything on the career transition partnership or the resettlement suited me. I looked at it. But I just took the plunge. Uh, I knew I had my enhanced learning credits. So after I finished with Peterborough County Council, I thought to myself, oh, I'll be happy just doing this for the rest of my life. But there's always an urge with service people to, to, to try and better, to be in competition with yourself, really, to improve and get a bit of better, extra money, you know, improve the quality of life for your family. And then I moved then to a, a, a role in Cambridge where I looked after a, a load of sports centres and, and large secondary schools through the COVID time as well, which tested me operationally. It was a very good job and I learned off fantastic people. And there's lots and lots of really good people in Civilian Street who have there lots are. of skills. And it's about bridging that gap between being a service person and actually learning to communicate. And I'm now in a position where I see lots and lots of CVs from servicemen and the language is sometimes not quite right. I can read it, but I'm usually on a board of six or seven, six or seven people. Let's say we're looking at a CV and if the language isn't right, I'm only one of six, but it breaks my heart to see them not quite where it needs to be on the CV. I know what they're trying to say, but my other five colleagues don't. I think there's a communication language where them transferable skills are not brought brought in effectively, if that makes sense. But, Paul, you yeah. have a lot more skills than me on that. Well, I see that. Funny enough, a, a really lovely chap sent me his CV today, and it was so policey that I knew exactly what he was trying to say, so I'm going to polish that up with him later on because it's yeah. – it, the, the skills are sometimes missed in the in – the, the detritus in the in the actual CV because it, they're good CVs and like you say if you're reading it as the as the RSM you know exactly what they're trying to say yeah but you put that in front of uh, you know another person who's trying to recruit for a post and they're thinking well that doesn't make, mean anything to me you know no. the, it just but yeah well, I I do see that on a regular basis and it's it's a shame it is a shame so did you have to do FM courses then did you go off and do get trained up or how did that all pan out so so your portfolio my portfolio of skills started in the welsh guards actually i went away and did a very good course at deep cut which is defense logistics and facilities management right. course it's basically a quartermastering course and on that course 
eight weeks, I had the opportunity to take the civilian equivalent, which cost me about 200 quid. But at the time, I thought, well, that's money well spent because yeah. it will give me something on the CV other than machine gunning and marching, which I was good at. So I did that. And then I, I learned a little bit about contract management, health and safety, workplace management, uh, how to interact with people, how to communicate. And actually, it paid dividends. So when I got my first job, all I did was took smaller tickets like my IOSH course, uh, workplace management course, asbestos awareness and all the things that make a good facilities manager. But I was never I wasn't a strategic thinker then. I was a, I was almost tactically learning the ropes. Yes. But when I when I came into my next job and I had to think about cost budgets and the business side of being in facilities management, those skills I did not have a clue at. And I was aware then that to make the next step in my in my civilian life to, to get where I wanted to get to, I, I'd have to do some work experience on that. And I did. And, I, and my, my boss at the time, a, a lady called Claudine, was my director of operations, allowed me within supervision to flourish, spend a bit of money to be a project manager, to, to control it myself with a good bit of oversight. But then I went off to, uh, and then and then actually the government changed their their veteran support package where I, in my head, I had these enhanced learning credits I was going to use in 10 years. But I think they changed it. They've now changed it to five years. So uh, fair play to the career transition team at Aldershot. They phoned me up four years later after my discharge and said, Paul, you got, are you aware this has changed? You've only got a year, the lady said to me, to get yourself on some wow. kind of course. And then I went, I just Googled uh, facilities management academic courses and then uh, enrolled myself on a, on a degree level course through Leeds Beckett University, which actually, in hindsight, was probably crazy because it was on the job learning and academic writing. But the, but. We're resilient as service people. I went up to Leeds Beckett. The course director at the time through the uh, the Department of Construction and Engineering and Facilities Management wanted to see me, and I spent two weeks up in their library learning the basics of academia. And then, and then he said to me, I'll quote, I'll take you on as a risk, because I never had any A-levels. I said, oh, thank you very much. Fast forward three years after that degree course, I got a first class honours degree, and I, I I issued an actual academic paper on facilities management, which who'd have thought as a as a young Welsh guardsman coming from North Wales that that was achievable. But I've got to be thankful to the Enhanced Learning Credits system, and I would recommend anybody using that. Don't let that die out, because the tax man will keep that. Oh, yeah. And it's it's in the government pot, unless you have, unless you... Uh, use it; it will, it will, it will stay in the government's coffers, and they, they, were, they do make it hard, Paul. Oh yeah, it was so hard to apply for those learning credits. It was almost like you needed a degree to apply for it. But if you can just get through that bureaucracy, it's worth it. And now you are with the British Antarctic Survey. How did that yeah. come about? I mean, that's that's oh, the title itself: head of head of UK facilities, British Antarctic Survey. I mean, how did that come about? Job hunting, Paul. I mean, uh, uh, the British Antarctic Survey have a very good recruiting page. Uh, I I was always, everybody's always looking, but the, the dilemma I had, I was really happy. I mentioned the mentoring support I'd had in my previous role. 
and I was I was really reluctant to move on to this role, but I found it uh, I found it through chance, and I applied for it, and I didn't think in my wildest dreams I'd get it, but I. I'm very honoured to be uh, in that organisation. And I mean, a lot of the British Antarctic Survey's history is steep in uh, military history. Yeah, uh, We were born out of uh, an operation called Tabarin, uh, which was during the Second World War to set up uh, stations in the Antarctica region uh, to conduct scientific research. But there was also to be that presence down in that part of the world. So... The early expeditions into Antarctica were led by uh, Lieutenant Commander James Webb, who was one of the founding members. And then it became the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey. Uh, and then it changed to the British Antarctic Survey in 1962. So, uh, yeah, it was. It, they, I didn't even know they were in Cambridge, which was local to me. So I went, I, went, I went across for the interview. But at that stage, I'd understood the strategic element of being a, you know, being a senior senior person, especially in my in my profession, and uh, I, you know, at that time I felt I was ready. So I'd done the degree. I had some experience on the business side from my previous roles, and it all starts at the very start. I mean, a lot of people, especially warrant officers in my peer group, think they're going to walk into high-paying jobs. You know, you've got you can't start up there. You've got to civilian street is all about getting a good experience profile. And if that means like when I was at the site manager, you know, I emptied the bins. Yeah. I made sure the grass was cut. You know, I cleaned the toilets. None of that bothered me because I was getting work experience. But you can't afford to be a job snob because nope. it, it's the people don't give you anything. You have to earn it. And if that's earning the respect and, and the confidence of the people you're working with you have to be able to do everything. And let's go back to that machine gunner. If you don't know how to use a machine gun, how can you tell somebody else to use it? And that's exactly the same. It's the same principle through business as well. It is. It is. And, and that was my biggest my biggest gap in my skill set would be the business side. And one thing I, I think... I've struggled with, and you might have some experience of this, Paul, and the people you deal with through through the sort of vex jobs and helping service people, is that we don't we don't think about money when we're serving. I mean, we're, we're public service, you know, we do what we're told, we deliver good service, we don't necessarily get involved with business, and I, and, and I had to learn how to deal with finances and there's a whole new skill set in dealing with money and everybody says it's the root to all evil but actually it's like any other resource it needs to be managed uh, within compliance yep. uh, methods you know the tendering process contracts and it's how this country has a well it hasn't you know the economy is improving but it's how people get work and it's yeah and when you can see the bigger picture of business even though I work in a public sector organisation, I, you know, without our, uh, like, you know, contractors, you know, whether it be catering or in the facilities world of construction and all of the industries that needed to support what we're trying to do, unless you've got a good bit of business, if you, unless you know what you're talking about, like you say on the gun, you can't deal with a contractor because because they're they're trying to make a living. 
Yeah. And you've got, and it has to be businesslike. And they, sometimes it, you can't give favours, you know, because in my example, we deal with taxpayers' money. And in a business, you might be dealing with somebody's livelihood. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I really struggled with that, but it's something I, I got myself up to speed on pretty quickly. Yeah, it's hard to know value sometimes because, like you say, if I needed to pull people into a particular situation, then within a little, I could say, yeah, we'll have we'll have extra people on on overtime. It's different in the military, but it, yeah, it, but but that's exactly right. So, have you been down to the Antarctic, or do you get the opportunity? So, I I've only been working in my current organisation for two years, and the there is going to be opportunities, but at the moment, the 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 estate down there is going through a, a period of change with the Antarctic Infrastructure Modernization Program. So they're improving things like runways, accommodation, and this most of, like any operation, it's bums on seats to get people down there. We've yeah. got a ship and a plane, uh, a few planes. So getting rotation in there at the moment, it's the construction, the actual people who are going to be building it wow. and the safety staff to, to look after that. So, Spaces are limited, but in uh, next year, hopefully, I'll get a chance. Once things are built, then facilities managing comes in for things like logistics and forward mounting stuff. So I'm not saying I haven't got a role to play there, but there will be opportunities when the time is right and things are built. So I've got colleagues in uh, the polar state who who uh, are like building things and modernising things, and, and then that will slowly develop into like people occupying and and working from from those environments but cambridge is where we've started uh improving uh our science capabilities we've got uh autonomous you know i was involved with a project building an autonomous vehicles workshop which uh is is a fantastic it's almost like a, a torpedo that can go off the boat our boat the sir david attenborough into the sea and it can do a lot of the research just by i don't know the scientists and engineers operate it but it can gather a lot of data from from doing that but we've built a, a purpose-built workshop for it with a big swimming pool if you like in cambridge and that was a that was a really big project for me uh, in my first one which it, which is now built so and there's other things going on at cambridge like a, a polar aquarium which Everybody thinks, oh, it's an aquarium. It's easy to build, but it's a minus twenty-five aquarium. Wow! So these species that come from Antarctica to be studied here, have, you know, they're, they're living things, so they need an element of care. But also, there's lots of legislation I've had to get my head around with DEFRA and importing of live species into this country. And also, we we've got the challenges of avian flu. Unfortunately, avian yeah. flu is is influences that in our operational efforts because that is starting to show itself in South Georgia and, and the Bird Island and South Sandwich Island. Oh. It's not yet on the Antarctic Peninsula, but it is slowly creeping down. Uh, I know this country has had a, had a wave of, of bird influenza, oh. but the, the scientists aren't too sure at the moment how that's going to go because these Antarctic birds have not have not had to deal with it yet. So, uh, yeah, so there's lots going on. I mean, it's a really interesting role, and I think building that skill set and you touched on it paul where you know the job snobs i like that that is a really good way of doing it you can't be a job snob you've got to learn you know you can't just because you're a warrant officer in the welsh guards doesn't make you a good business person not a chance you've got to learn those skills and if that means you go have to go and 
somebody has to show you and tell you what to do i think that's that's the best way to do it and salary expectations as well of what people want when they leave can sometimes uh be unrealistic i think i mean and and i think a lot of the guys i speak to when they're coming out and they want you know the triple figure salary actually that comes with a lot of stress you, you know you think mm-hmm. you're gonna earn them kind of money and people don't want a piece of you for it there's there's the business side you know you're paying somebody that you want you want to squeeze every inch out of that person so there's a stress element as well and that was something i was cautious of is not getting myself too stressed but but i think what you've done is absolutely spot on because you've got stability in your life i've got lots of friends who have gone off and done the cp stuff and i'm not decrying what they do no but this week they'll be working next week they may not be working because the the principle becomes fickle. They start changing their mind. You've got that stability around you, working for a credible organisation or an in- incredible organisation, and that gives you that stability. But we're all different. We're all cut out of different bits of cloth. But, Absolutely. But we do need to have that stability because I I don't want to be looking over my shoulder and thinking, oh, you know, I've got to, I've got to work next week or I've got to do, you know. So it does it does make a hell of a difference. Yeah, I mean, at the lowest levels, I think job stability is something, first and foremost, people who who are exiting any form of service need to think about. My advice to anybody would, was, was to be realistic in your first job. So even if, you know, a police officer or a soldier, no matter what you are, if you're going into something completely different, yeah, whether it be a project manager or something, you know, the project managers I work with have been project managers a bloody long time. They're good professional people who understand project processes. Yeah. Uh, you know, a 16-year Bobby or a 20-year soldier coming out, they're my skills you've got to go learn. You've got to go follow the person, yeah. understand it, and then, you know, implement that and get – and professional qualifications as well. Don't – don't think just because you, uh, whoever you were, you you automatically have the right of passage on a CV. You know, I read some saying reconnaissance, uh, reconnaissance two IC on a major operator. And my five colleagues are going, "What is that? What does that mean?" But but I I, I had it when when we first started doing this. We got CVs in, and it was like, I was the I was the firearms commander for the royal wedding, and I'm like, I'm, and. And right. my wife is reading these out to me. She goes, oh, "This is good CV." I said, "What rank were they?" And it, I know who the, I know who the firearms commander was for the for yeah. William and Kate's wedding. You know, they can't all do it. And it's yeah, they were in their little section. They had that had responsibility around it, but they weren't the overall commander. And no, it's, that's quite frustrating. But, yeah, I mean, that's it's almost the opposite. It might not be the opposite of job snobbing, but you oversell yourself. Yeah. I read a lot of CVs where you, I've been a director. I'll give you an example. I'm director of this. I'm a director of that. I've been a director of this. And you, and, and I look at the salary range and think, why the hell are you coming to want to work for us when we're offering this? Yeah. You know, it just doesn't – some of it, it doesn't, doesn't add make up. sense. I think where service people can get it right is, is to – Get the jargon into what is a transferable skill. Yes. So I'll use one example, I would say, where you're saying a firearms commander, there's a responsibility skill there where they might have been responsible for an inventory or a a, a training yeah. element or a risk element. And absolutely, 
So there's three skills. But actually, that saying it, you're a firearms commander of this, this doesn't doesn't tell me you can run an inventory, you can uh, you you can manage risk, and you you were in charge of a training budget or yeah. you know a certain package. And that then you think, oh yeah, responsibility, experience. Oh, is there some transferable skills there? Yeah, absolutely. Not I was you know I was I don't know the major general and I was in charge of this and that's just. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's just un, you know completely out of scope for expectations. It is, mate. Well, look, Paul, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Before I conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add, also or correct? No, not at all. I mean, uh, just like to thank you, Paul. And if if I can help ex-service people, whoever they are, I'd be more than happy to you know to have a telephone conversation, or if somebody wants a bit of a help with a CV or a little bit of advice on on getting into something a bit more stable then you know i'd be more than happy to help anybody really and you know i'm not sure who you're uh, who who feeds in through you who needs support but yeah that offer is always there and i'm always happy to have a telephone conversation with anybody it doesn't have to be ex services who, who wants a bit of advice i mean within within the confines of you know the job description and the business side we yeah, spoke of course. about being being clean in everything we do. But, yeah, more than happy to help anybody who needs a hand, Paul. You're a very good man. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really hope that at some point we can catch up. You're only down the road and uh, we can have a, yeah, have no, a, absolutely. Have a brew. Well, if you ever want to come up to Cambridge and have a look at some of the stuff the British Antarctic Survey do, I would we've got, love we've got to. some interesting, interesting things going on in Cambridge, which more than happy to host you for a coffee and, see what they're all about it's it, we've got an airship swing we've got we've got quite a complex operation and we do have a lot of a lot of service people work for us but we do also rebuff a lot of service people because they haven't got the language right yeah yeah and that's well hopefully we can help people and, and get them educated into that area yeah and uh, I, my offer goes if if you think somebody is i don't want to use the word loose cannon because that might be fair but i there's no way i would have got this job leaving as an, an RSM there to get to here without having, uh, without my ideas and being changed from what I thought, how, I was, how good I was. And yeah, I had loads of skills, but I wasn't, I wasn't ready to do this job. And I, I would have just fell on my face without, without the sort of prerequisites and the, and the experience I needed. And that process has probably taken me seven or eight years. So I'm probably quicker than some people, but like you say, everybody's cut of a different cloth, and some people do. You know, life life gets in the way, and you know, some people out there do get treated and probably unfairly with certain things. And uh, I think those service people who have been given, where people have taken a risk on on them, I also hear stories where they've let the, their employer down as well. So it's got to work two ways. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, yeah. I know it's a Royal Naval ad, but you know you're the man that was born in North Wales and made in the Welsh Guards. There you go. And, you know I absolutely love the Welsh Guards, and I would, I say, would you go back tomorrow? I wouldn't go back tomorrow because I've got 25 years of fond memories, you know. And but I've, one thing I've got is a, is a is a cohort of friends that you only got to pick up the phone to. Yeah, I know you. You know, it's it's. I'm still a Welsh Guardsman at heart, but just you know. Somebody else is doing that now, and of course. I like to go back for you know regimental events, and I see the guys, and it's you know it's it's fantastic, and there's a new generation of people coming through. 
Well, when you get bored, there's always jobs at the Tower of London for former warrant officers. You well, know, do you know what? I looked at being a yeoman warder, <laughs> and uh, the, when the job, them jobs came out, I'd already bought my house up here with the missus and oh, move, right. moving down to London and getting my kit back on. I thought that time had passed me by, but people like Paul and that do a fantastic job oh. down there. When you see him, send him my very best regards. Yeah, no, I will do. I will do, mate. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. And um, as Thank I say, you, hopefully we can catch up and I will speak to the others and, and send them your best. I need an hand or somebody to have a second look at a CV, just give me a shout. Bless your heart. God bless you. All right. Cheers, Cheers mate. mate. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. Bye-bye.